You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderlin, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Amen. You may be seated. Hey guys, it's great to see you this morning. I trust that you're doing well. I feel like summer is finally showing up, and I am grateful. I uh, had one person, a friend of mine, Syracuse this week, said, well, I might have to get the air conditioners out. I'm thinking, where do you live? It has not been that hot at my house. I don't know where you live, but I would like that problem, quite frankly. So anyhow, I'm looking forward to sharing with you out of uh, Esther chapter 5 this morning, and we're getting kind of near the end of it, and if God allows, I would love to next week kind of us to look at the a little more in detail now that we're kind of really through most of the story, just the invisible hand of God kind of unknowingly and working in lives around us. And so often I think we need to be reminded of that because we can kind of go through life and we face things. We're like, God, are you at work? I don't see it. And we wonder. And Esther is all about God always at work deeply in our situations in the world around us. We just don't have eyes to see it. But I sensed as I was reading this uh, this past week, kind of in preparation this morning as we were reading chapter 5, that God wanted us to kind of dial in and drill down a little bit into Haman's demise. You know, Haman is that enemy. He, had, he is the one who's out to get Mordecai, who has put a death sentence on not only Mordecai's life, but on all the Jews of, of all of the kingdom of Persia, from, from uh, North Africa all the way to India. They have, it is, it's like the original Holocaust, that they are to be, to be killed and to be be put to death. And we're going to see in, in Haman's life, how did he get to this point? And we're going to see that the challenges that he has, the mistakes that he's made and allowed in his hearts and his heart are the same mistakes that are in the hearts and lives of people all over us. In fact, he ultimately makes the mistake of a lifetime because it cost him his life, surprisingly and shockingly, that he's going through life and living up, you know, living a life. And we'll see today that he's excited about all the things that he gets to do in the honor. And then literally he is gone just like that. And we'll kind of unpack some of those details and some of just the turns of events in the story. But this morning, I want to talk to you about you and me, how we, how we should avoid these two major mistakes in our life and how do we go about doing that? So pick up the story with me, if you would, in, in Esther chapter 5. I'll read the first couple of verses and, uh, and then the last part of the, the chapter. Esther 5. You remember, we left Esther last time saying, All right, I'll go into the king, even though I'm not supposed to, even though it may cost me my life. I'll go into the king, and I'll see if I can do something about this. And the Bible says in Esther 5, On the third day that Esther put on her royal robes, and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Can you imagine what her heart would have been like? She knows good and well the moment of truth has come that this next moment is either going to be her last as the, if the king rejects her, or her next moment, she's going to be received, and now she has to unpack this story about why his right man's hand, you know, the, the guy that his right hand, Haman, cannot be trusted. Imagine the, the butterflies and the anxiety and all of it in her heart, but she nonetheless steps forward and presents herself to the king, and the king sees her off across the courtroom. And the Bible says in verse 2, When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. 
And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the, of the scepter. And the Bible goes on to, to say that, that the king said, Esther, why are you here? He knows this is a big deal. He's probably a little shocked and surprised that she's taking life into her own hands or thinking, oh my goodness, do I have Vashti 2.0 all over again and now this woman is not going to listen to me. But he's, he says, Esther, what is it? Up to half of my kingdom, I'll give it to you. And Esther says, I would like to invite you and Haman to a dinner party that I'm planning a little bit later on. She was a wise, savvy woman. She knew that to blurt out this intrigue and to, that would make the king ultimately look bad, that he made a bad decision. You don't do that in front of him and all of the rest of the court. That's a bad day. And so she set up this dinner party with two people, two guests, her husband, the king, and Haman. And so the king immediately says, get Haman, that's a great idea. I don't know how, you, how you're king of a country and can just, you know, let alone an empire, just at the drop of a hat, just say, oh, yeah, that'd be great. I'll just cancel all my appointments and we'll have dinner. But that's what they did. And so they're at the dinner table and they had dinner and they had this lavish Eastern feast. I mean, picture course after course and things coming in and they're kicking back and the king and they're drinking wine and the king's like, all right, Esther, what is it that you'd like? She knew it was more than just a dinner party. He knew there was something big. He's like, what is it? Up to half of my kingdom, I'll give it to you. And if you read in chapter 5, she kind of stammers, well, if I found favor in your eyes, and if it pleases you, and if... And she kind of... Would you just come back to another dinner party tomorrow night? You know, she couldn't quite get it out. And uh, the providence of God, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. She's like, would you and Haman come back tomorrow? And I'll, t I'll tell you tomorrow. And the king says, all right, we'll do it. Well, that's where we pick up the story again in verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. I mean, think about it. He alone got invited into the presence of the king and queen together. Nobody else in the land had that much privilege and had that much opportunity. So he went out excited, joyful in his heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Remember, Haman was full of hate. He, the, the rule went out that if you were in the presence of, of Haman, that you had to bow down and fall on your knees and treat him pretty close to a god walking around. And Mordecai refused, and that's why Haman was out to get him. So Haman goes from being excited and happy and cheery to... There's that Mordecai again. No fear. I get no honor from that guy. He doesn't obey. He's not falling on his knees. And the Bible says that he's filled with wrath against him. Nevertheless, in verse 10, Haman restrained himself and went home. You can all, we can always restrain ourselves with anger more than we think we can. But he restrained himself and went home. And he sent and he brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them, listen to the things that he shares to them. He's trying to soothe himself. He's trying to make himself feel good. He's trying to, 
He's trying to make himself justified why he should be treated differently from Mordecai than he really is. So he invites his friend, brings his wife, and he recounts to them these things, the splendor of his riches. Look at how wealthy I am and all that I've got. I don't know if he rolled out his bank account and he flipped open, you know, his pass or whatever. I don't know. But he told him about all of the money and all of the stuff he's got and showed it to him. He showed him the number of his sons. Sons were seen as a, as a thing of honor. And he's like, look at my, these boys. Aren't I awesome? Because look at these guys. All the promotions with which the king had honored him. Told him about how everybody bows down and all of the honor that the king had bestowed on him. And how he had advanced him. How the king himself had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. I'm above everybody. Everybody's got to follow me. I'm the number two in the land. I'm, I'm just almost like the king myself. He's re regaling on all of that. All of it. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. I'm in the elite social circles. I have arrived. Now catch this. And yet, in verse 13, all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see that Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. That's like 75 feet. I mean, it's just, that is up there. Let this tall gallows, history's not so sure if that word is gallows or stake. It's either put a stake 75 feet in the air and have him impaled on it, which is a pretty gruesome sight, or put a, a gallows 75 feet in the air and let him be hung on it. But regardless, here's all you got to do, Haman. Just have that guy executed up so that everybody can see and you can get victory and vengeance over this guy. Let him be made. And in the morning, the Bible says, tell the king. Don't ask the king. Tell him. A little bit of pride there, huh? You just start bossing the king around. Tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast, because that's going to solve all your problems, Haman. You know, Mordecai is your only problem in the world. The issue's not you, it's him. Just get rid of him, kill him, and you'll be happy and you'll live large. And then jo go joyfully with the king to the feast. Go sit down and enjoy. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Wow. Breathtaking. Two mistakes that I want to show you this morning that Haman made. Two major life mistakes. One leads to the other, and they both together lead ultimately to his complete, utter destruction. The story turns, as we'll see next week, that, that the roles are reversed. And ultimately, Haman is the one that gets hung on the gallows, not Mordecai. And that Haman basically made the pit, dug the pit, and he's the one that falls into it himself, as the Bible says in, in the book of Psalms. And it led to his utter destruction. So many in our world today are living life large, amassing all that they can get in life, hurtling toward eternity, and thinking that everything's okay, and thinking they've got the, the, the world by the tail, only to at the very end to discover their ultimate demise and destruction. 
first mistake that you and I should avoid, major life mistake, the first mistake is, is living for what this world has to offer. Look at, listen to the things that Haman regaled himself. When he was feeling bad, when he wanted to soothe himself, when he wanted to pat himself on his back, I mean, he, he, he's going in the corner and sucking his thumb and like, oh, I got, you know, Mordecai didn't bow down to me. His wife should have said, what is your problem? Like, you got a serious issue here, dude. What, what are you talking about? And he starts going back on all the things that make him feel good about life. And it's all the stuff that this world has to offer. All that the money can buy. Look at how wealthy I am. Look at these kids. In fact, he kind of relegates his kids, his boys in particular, almost like a property. Almost like, yeah, they're my badge of honor. So many parents today are living vicariously their life through their kids and why they put such an intensity on their kids and such demands because it's really about them and their success. It's really not about the kid. It's like their name's on the line more than the kid. And more to, or Haman's in that same boat. He's like, look at all of this honor, the influence. He was the worst of the, the, in the political sense of the world, being a Politician is not bad, but politics because of the money and the power and, and all of that tends to be corrupt. And Haman was in the middle of that world. He was living for all that this world had to offer him. That's what he lived for. That's, what, that's what, where his identity was. That's what he was, wanted to be known for. That's the legacy that he wanted. That's what he was trying to grab. That's the grade that he was trying to earn. That's the award that he was going for. That's what he was shooting for, to, to get more and have more of it and have it all to be about him. When you and I face a crisis in life, when you and I face those challenges, the things that we go to to make ourselves feel better are often the things that really show what we value most in life. You see, be careful. When you and I are facing a crisis, now, this is a pretty, in my mind, a pretty lame crisis. He talked mean to me. He didn't honor me. He didn't salute me when he should have saluted me. I don't have his respect. He's tearing me down. He's ruined my reputation. Just his ego is so inflated with one guy. And I recognize the law went out and Mordecai was breaking the law, but put ourselves in the shoes of Haman that in the middle of that crisis, if you will, in his mind, what he goes to reveals what he's really living for in life. You see, when you and I go through difficult times in life, hopefully more difficult things than these is what it takes to trigger it. But the things that we go to are the things that we're living for. The things that we try to soothe ourselves with, make ourselves feel better about ourselves, those are the things that we're genuinely living for. Those are the things that are most important to us. Those are the things that we're trusting in. Those are the things that we're hoping make us feel better. Some turn to food, some turn to shopping, some turn to pornography, some turn to, to, to other things. All of them are things that become, that we have turned to, that we've allowed and given place in our life to have a, a purpose and a value way above what God designed 
and what God desired. So the first huge mistake that, that Haman is stepping on is that he is living life, living it up, living the life for all that it has to offer. And ultimately, it causes tremendous destruction. It leads him on this trail that we'll talk about in just a minute. Leads him on this, this path of destruction because right from the very beginning of his life, he's got his goals and priorities set on the wrong objective. He thought this life was all about whatever you could get out of it. Folks, regardless of how long you live, if that is all that your goal is or purpose or person's purpose in life is, the day is going to come when that will end. I don't care how long you can live, how long you can hold off father time. I don't care how much you can immortalize yourself and how many monuments you can make of yourself and how much of a legacy you can make. I don't care if you can freeze dry your body in cryogenics, hoping that somehow they can add a little water and reconstitute you a few years later and pop back out. It is going to come to an end. And if all that you've ever lived for in this life and everything that you will ever have will come to an end in this world and there will be a point in your life which there is no future, which there is no hope, which there is nothing to look forward to tomorrow, that is a reality. No matter how young or how old you are, that is a reality. But when you live for something much bigger than that, when you have something or someone else, our Lord Jesus, who is more of an identity, you always have a tomorrow. You always have a future. You always have a hope. You always have something that is bigger regardless of what's going on in the world around you. You see, if you live for just today and for what this world has to offer, you're going to face a lot of disappointments in life. You're going to face an awful lot of pain in this life. I would love to, there were so many things that I would love to study if I could and were smart enough and there was enough money, but I would love to study the economics of sin in the world. How much money sin costs us? How much it costs us medically? How much it costs us in our court systems and in law enforcement? And just, it's just crazy amount, crazy amount of money. But how much is spent to help people cope with life, and really the problem in life is they've set their goals on the wrong thing. <laughs> and then when life lets them down and they can't achieve that or they can't have it and they complain about it and they feel bad and something has torn it down or torn, they, they go and they either get medicated or have therapists and all of this. And all the while, the real root problem is, is they've set their heart on the wrong thing something that is going to fall through their fingers and their hand at every single turn. Because the life that Haman has chosen for himself will never satisfy. There always will be a Mordecai. There will always be something that, that tears it down, that, that hits at us, because God has demonstrated to us that there's nothing in this world that is worth being our world. There's nothing that this world has to offer that can last. And when we step on that landmine and we stay there and we don't turn to God who is much bigger than all of that, then we are making a mistake of the lifetime. We have stepped on the slippery slope and we are headed for a major fall. And that then leads us to the, the second big mistake that, that Haman made. And that is that he lived a life, best that I can tell, a life of, of bitterness. 
a, a life of just, just harshness, criticalness, not happy with what's going on. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 12 that we should be careful to avoid a, a root of bitterness. You know, the world around us, we don't talk a lot about bitterness. It's a good biblical word, word a good biblical concept. But in Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible tells it that in verse 15, it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness which springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Bitterness is a, a root that if we're not careful, that comes from a seed planted down in our heart. And just like every tree or bush, that root gets bigger and it produces fruit upward. The idea, the concept of, of bitterness biblically is a, a concept of, a, it means harshness. It means antagonism, animosity, involves anger. Have you ever met someone before that's just constantly negative? in their life, someone that anger seems to always be below the surface, you know, maybe on one hand could seem to be okay, but you know that trigger is right there and can go off. Somebody that's cynical, bitter people are often cynical about life. They, they sometimes can be, uh, they can be depressed for sure. They can have this, this outlook on life, suspicious, the world's out to get them. The root of it, the Bible says, is a, is a bitterness. In fact, in Colossians, the men, the Bible tells us that we are to love our wives, the ESV says, and not to treat them harshly, not to be harsh toward them. The old King James said, don't be bitter toward them. That idea of bitterness is the idea of a, a roughness, a harshness, a, an animosity towards someone. And the Bible describes it that, that we as people can allow this root of bitterness to sink into, deep into our soul. Listen to what the book of Ephesians says. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, it describes bitterness this way. Or it challenges us to get rid of bitterness, I should say, in this way. It says this. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You see, that, that list of words starts with bitterness, goes to wrath, which is a kind of a bubbling anger, then goes to a, a full-blown anger that's above the water. The difference is between those two anger. The first one is like the slow burn. It's almost like a fire that doesn't quite have enough oxygen. You know, firefighters, I'm not a firefighter, but, you know, it, when the door gets open or finally burns through an oxygen lights room, it just, whoosh, it goes up. That's what the second anger is. The first one is just the bubbling, seething, below-the-surface kind of anger. There's a progression here. Bitterness is what's behind anger. That bitterness then leads to that bubbling wrath, that, that type of anger. Then it leads to that major outburst that we often, you know, will see in, in our lives and others. And then that leads to this clamor, this kind of talking, talking out, this, this and it leads to slander, talking bad about others and kind of, you know, making a lot of noise about the, the whole situation. You see, bitterness is really at the root of so much of, of this in our people's lives. 
People that have anger issues really have a bitterness issue more than they have an anger issue. They've allowed something in their life, a hurt, to cause an unforgiveness, to cause a root of, of animosity in their soul, to create this attitude against others in, in life. You see, for followers of Jesus Christ, when we get hurt by others, that's the hurt. Make no mistake, a hurt is the beginning of that bitterness. When others hurt us and we're offended or bothered by that, somewhere along the way we realize, wait a minute, yeah, they've not treated me right, but I have a responsibility to God to forgive, and I need to let go of this. And we walk through that process, whether it's that hour or that day or that week, and we let go of it and we avoid this root of bitterness. But when you and I allow a hurt to be harbored in our heart and we don't deal with it, that every single time will create a, a root of bitterness and disgruntledness and animosity. And if we're not careful, it then spreads where it's not just toward one person or to one situation or one area, but it just starts coming out in life. And we've allowed that bitterness to settle in and that animosity to begin to flourish. That's what the Bible is describing as bitterness. And we see a picture of that here in, in Haman's life that he's got below the surface this animosity that on a moment's turn, because he's made life all about himself, that he feels hurt that somebody's not doing what he wants, that he then becomes angry and antagonistic and has animosity toward Mordecai. In fact, people who are bitter... We, we don't want to admit our own bitterness. I'm not bitter. I'm not I'm never really bitter. Well, we probably battle it more than we want to admit. And the world around us definitely is. Because bitter people don't always walk around with a frown on their face. Haman was happy just a moment before. Life's good. Joy in his heart. But just below that, like a little M&M coating, you know, that's the candy coating. But right below that was the bitterness. And it didn't take but two seconds for that, that joy to evaporate and be gone. And to be right back in the middle of it. You see, people who really have a bitterness issue are those who can kind of almost swing. One moment they're good, and the next you're like, what happened? They were great this morning, and now this... See, that bitterness is just always there below the surface, just, just below the water, below the waterline, and it pops up out of nowhere. Sometimes when you're with someone, you feel like you have to be careful, you have to walk around eggshells because you don't know if you're going to step on the wrong spot. Really what's going on is there's a root of bitterness in their life. There's hurts that they're not dealt with, that they've harbored, and they've allowed that to grow, and that fruit has produced anger and all kinds of garbage in their life. And according to Hebrews, it then defiles many those around because the nature of bitterness is it spreads all around. Haman spread. 
I don't like Mordecai. In fact, I don't like all Jews. In fact, let's set a day. If anybody doesn't like the Jews, we're just going to have them all killed. It just spread to everybody that was around them. That's the nature of bitterness. It, it leads us to where we don't even see reality well. Mordecai's, or Haman's there, excuse me, and he's, you know, relating all these things in his life, and he's like, none of that matters anything because Mordecai, this one problem I've got. Folks, he wasn't living in the real world. He was ignoring all of those incredible blessings and gifts in life that had been given to him and he wasn't seeing reality. You see, when you and I allow bitterness to take root in our life, it colors reality completely. It changes the way we look at people. And we think we're seeing with clear glasses, and we're not. We don't have clear vision. We're driving around in the fog at night without fog lights on and one headlight that works and can barely see anything, and yet we think, oh, I got everything perfect. No, you don't. See, when you and I allow that hurt and that bitterness to sink into our soul, we misread people, we devalue people, we misread situations. We really don't understand what's going on. It's that bitterness is why a husband can get so angry with his wife and push her into a wall. It's why a wife can become bitter and turn cold and aloof and a and a separation in her heart toward her husband. It's why they're, even if they live together, there can be that animosity toward one another. They're just dancing around because they've allowed one or the other or both this bitterness to well up inside of them. It's why a parent can look at their kids and ride them too hard and have bitterness toward them. That when we deal with things that people have hurt us and we're right in the hurt that they've dealt, that they've, we're seeing it correctly. They really did hurt us. We're at risk because even though when that person's wrong, you and I should not allow that bitterness to take root in our heart because it defiles us. That anger, the Bible says, the wrath of man the wrath that you and I produce does not work, doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. It is never a tool of God to work in a situation. In fact, it always tears things down when we act on it in those kinds of ways. And so that is the huge mistake number two. You see, the big picture, when you and I live for this world, it's going to let us down. People are going to do things to us. This world's going to hit, and it's going to hit home. And when that's our God and that's what we've lived for in this world, we have no choice, but we're going to fall down into this path of hurt and bitterness and anger and all the world that has to offer. And that's the road that Haman took, and he ultimately meets his demise. And the one that's at fault is himself. He's the one that, that chose and took that pathway. See, that's the, that mistake led to that misfortune. It's not that what happened to him was had anything to do with luck. What happened was is he kind of got the natural results of what he was doing. Listen to what, what Psalm chapter 7 says. Here's, God's word says this. He says, he says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief. Pregnant with mischief. Got all kinds of things that he's stirring up. And gives birth to lies. 
and he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. You see, when you and I allow that bitterness into our heart to take root and that anger and that vengeance, we think that's what's going to solve our problem. Mordecai, or Haman, here all you need to do is just make a gallows 75 feet high and hang the guy on it. That'll take care of everything. You'll be happy. You'll be rid of Mordecai. It'll be great. Bitterness says those things will solve it. But they don't. What happens is, is when we don't forgive and we don't walk through that process, I'll talk about that in just one second and we'll be done. When we don't do that, we enslave ourselves to that other individual, to that other situation, and it shackles us and it controls us and it binds our heart up and it stops all joy that we might ever have, just as we saw here with Haman. It, it stops up everything. And we become the one who's actually enshackled and controlled. Mordecai made the choice not to be controlled by, by Haman, and he wasn't walking around all sullen and bitter. He's just like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to honor God. And he's walking around free. And it made Haman even madder because he was the one all been out of shape with that. And that progressed to those to others. See, that whole bitterness becomes contagious. That's why the Bible says, be careful. Be careful, church, that you don't allow bitterness into your heart. See, there, bitterness is the kind of thing that hits the world around us, and living for the world hits the world around us, but it seeps into our heart as followers of Jesus as well. And we start living for what this world has to offer, and that's our whole objective and goal. Or, and out of that, then we begin to get offended and bothered because our parents didn't do something the way we wanted. And we allow this deep-seated antagonism below the surface toward them that colors our life. We begin having those feelings towards our spouse because we can't get past something that they did or the way they treat us or something else toward our, our boss or coworker, those others, and we, our in-laws, all of those relationships, and we allow that and begins to cause us to be angry and bitter in the process. And we go down that road, and that reproduces to the people around us that they begin to be critical and bitter and jaded. We can even become that way. I think there's a lot of Christians today who are feeling that way toward our government and the world around us. Folks, we should never be excited when we see atrocities anywhere in the world around us. But we should never have such antagonism and frustration and anger in our heart and hurt that we give place for those things to grow. So how do we get rid of it? And I'm going to be finished. Well, first, how do we get rid of the, the world, living for the world? The Bible tells us that the way to get rid of the world is to sell what the world has to offer and cash in and get rid of it. man came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I'm a good person. I've done all this good stuff. And Jesus like, yeah, you're pretty good. But you got one thing. Go home, get everything you've got out of your house and sell it and give it away and follow me. The Bible says the guy went away sorrowful because he had a lot of possessions. See, you and I, are to, we're to cash in. We're to cash out, if you will. This world's got nothing 
that I want to live for. Nothing. Houses and titles and money and experiences. And, you know, even ultimately Jesus said, even family's not enough. If you don't hate your mother and father, you can't follow me. Hang on there. We're supposed to love our father and mother. I get it. But what Jesus is saying, he's speaking in strong terms, like you got to be willing to walk away from everything and just make me your number one in life, what you're living for, or you can't be my disciple. So he calls us to reject all of that and to live for him. And then when we do that, we're living for Jesus. By the way, when you live for Jesus, you don't get offended by as much stuff in this world. You're like, eh, doesn't matter. Didn't get what this world wanted. and I'm not getting treated by my boss the way I want. Eh, it's okay, because Jesus treats me really well. So you're not looking for that. It just has a way of putting your heart right and square in the world around us. And when you serve Him, but then when we do find ourselves in those hurts, and we're going to, we're going to get hurt because we're human beings with feelings and lives and all of that. Here's what you do. First, when you realize that you're angry, that you're upset, and maybe you're even at risk of that bitterness taking a hold, you need to step back and say, God, I realize I need to deal with this. God, what is behind my frustration? Why am I hurt? Why am I getting bitter? Why am I angry? And Lord, is that at all justified? Now be careful, because we will always justify our feelings and think that we're right, always, 100% of the time. But what God wants to do in your heart is to say, yeah, they really did hurt you, but by the way, you got a little too much ego here. The fact that you can't get over it says you definitely got a little too much ego here, even if they did you wrong. Yeah, you're right that the kid really screwed up and messed up, but yeah, you have way too high expectations for them. And, and you know what? You're not letting them figure out their own identity in life. And you're trying to hover over too much and make it about you. And you're too embarrassed for yourself and not thinking with them. And you've, you need to step out of that and confess that. You see, when you and I have those reactions, we need to say, God, what's underneath it? And is there something under here that needs to change, that you're trying to shine a light on in my world to, to help me to deal with sin and other stuff? And oftentimes, you and I are bitter, and we're allowing those things to happen. And what God's trying to do is like, yeah, I'm trying to get your attention that there's some stuff underneath that's a problem. Somewhere along this line, Haman should have stepped back and said, I think I've lost focus here. Somewhere along the line, he should have said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I think I've gone, made this a little bit bigger than it should be. And he never stepped back. And so when you begin to fall into that world where it's clutching you and gripping you and you can't get it out of your system and you wake up with it and every time you see that person, you need to step back and say, God, where is this coming from? What's underneath here? Where, why am I being hurt? And God, shine a light on it. Because sometimes our hurt is not justified in the way that we think it is. Sometimes God's trying to grow us in that. And when he shines a light on it, we realize that we confess it, then the bitterness begins to drain away begins to go away. And that leads me to the second thing. Once That's the first step. And then the second step is, is to forgive. Forgive. Ephesians 4, as I said, the Bible says, let all bitterness depart and anger and wrath and clamor and slander. Let it go. You see, 
we think that we can't get rid of this stuff, but truth of the matter is, is we are holding on tight with double fists and we're not letting it go. God says, let it go. They're birds that want to get away. They're the cat, your dog that's trying to squirm and get out of your hands. God, the Holy Spirit, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, He has saved you with His blood. He has put a new nature inside of you. You still are a sinner. It's why we battle this stuff. But He's also at work through His Holy Spirit pulling you to something else. And He's trying to pry it out of your hands. And God says, open it up and let it go. Well, why can't I? Well, really at heart, what we're trying to do is to get justice. I know that's a buzzword today, but it wasn't invented by any political machine today. It was actually God's word. The reason we hold on to that hurt and that bitterness is we feel justified in our feeling and our experience. We somehow feel like we're maligned if we let it go. And it's a lack of our trusting that God is going to be the one who's the just God and take care of it. You see, it's actually a lack of faith on our part. And it's actually a lack of trusting in God's justice. And it's actually making us the judge and making us the, the, the executioner, if you will, the, the one that's going to rain down justice in the world. And we're getting in the way of God. Instead, you and I let it go and we say, God, I don't have to hold on to this because, God, I trust you that any wrong in there, you're going to take care of. I'm, I don't need to take care of this. I trust you to take care of this. I'm going to simply let it go. And as we do that, then we make that conscious decision to forgive and to say, even though what you did meant harm to me, I'm going to forgive I'm going to let it go. I don't need to protect myself. I trust the God of heaven. Let me read this uh, story that, that many of you know well. Corey Tim Boom was a, a, was a part of a family that hid Jews during the Holocaust. She was from Holland. And she and her sister were captured and thrown into concentration camp. They ended up in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany called Ravensbrück. And she ended up surviving her sister ended up dying, and she describes in there the experience of, you know, just the atrocities that they were, they just went through and described her with other, her fellow um, prisoners being stripped down absolutely naked and all the piles of clothes just thrown into the room and having to, you know, have chemicals sprayed on their body to kill the lice and all of that. Just, it's just an atrocious, it's an amazing story of her life spiritually, but it's an awful reality of what she went through. And after the war was over, she, she went around trying to produce healing and encouragement and sharing the gospel of Christ with people. And she describes the incident of, of presenting uh, at one location and her eyes, as, the, as she finished talking, her eyes saw a man that immediately brought her back that was one of the guards at Ravensbrook who had seen her absolutely naked and just all of the experience of that. And she describes in graphic detail of how one moment she sees this man in a suit and a hat and the next moment she sees, you know, just visually just sees his uniform and the whip that he had and, and just as you can imagine, the emotion of all of that back there. And he comes forward, and he didn't remember her, and he said, I was there at Ravensbrook. Would you forgive me? And he puts out his hand. He didn't remember specifically. 
And listen to what she says after he did that. She says, and, I, and still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. He put her his hand out and said, would you forgive me? And she froze, just cold, not wanting to engage and not wanting to be there. But she knew that forgiveness wasn't an emotion. She knew it was a choice. She goes on and says, forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current, talking about electrical current, started at my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. And she forgives him, and she says, she goes on to say, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. That wasn't a metaphysical thing as much as just the Holy Spirit in her life empowered her to forgive that she made a choice and the emotion followed. You see, for you and I, we have to make a choice to let bitterness and anger and unforgiveness go. It's a decision we make. We don't feel those emotions until later on. And sometimes we have to make that decision multiple times. But the emotions will follow the decision. That's the way it works. Have you ever been driving in traffic and all of a sudden you're about to have a major accident, realize that you've slammed on the brakes, and, and then after that, your heart, you know, it's over. Your brain knows it's over. Everything's good. You made it. But your body doesn't know it yet. You see, so often we just want our bodies to react. When you've been hurt, even after you forgive and make that choice, your body takes a while to catch up. But you realize that you've forgiven, and your emotions will eventually follow and catch up. And you may have to do it a few times, but it will eventually follow if you make that choice. So church this morning, live for Jesus, not the world. Be careful about roots of bitterness in your life. They will destroy your life ultimately. Forgive. Recognize the hurts. Examine them. Allow God to shine His light in that and learn and grow from it. Forgive and let them go. And when you and I do that, we avoid the destruction that Haman experienced. And instead, we have the joy and the love of the Lord Jesus, even in the middle of of a difficult, messed up world. Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he loves us and saved us. Father, I pray that every person here would not only not live for the world, but would live fully for Jesus. Lord, for those that have never yet made that commitment, taken that step to just cash in everything and to say, I choose Jesus. I'm not going to find my identity and my future and hope and money and jobs and amassing what I can. Lord, I pray for those that they would turn and in simple faith, turn from their sin, repent of the wrong they've done, and ask Jesus to save them. 
And Lord, for those here who followed you and who already know Jesus, forgive us when we start living for this world again. Forgive us when we fall into self-pity and hurt and and we get angry and we allow this bitterness and these things to take root in our heart and we think we're justified in it. But Father, would you help us to realize that the real root of it oftentimes is we're living for what this world has to offer again. And Lord, would you help us to forgive, to let go of those past hurts. Lord, I know for some of those, the hurts go really deep. And I know that they've, so many have tried to forgive over the years. Lord, I pray that whatever needs to be revealed or happen, that you would help them to work through those things. But Lord, help us to deal with reality. Help us not to gloss over where we really are. And Father, would you help us to have that experience that Corey Ten Boom had, of, of even just making a decision, as difficult as it is for the one that has abused us harshly beyond belief. And Lord, would your love and forgiveness and grace flood our soul. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, folks, I don't know what God has spoken in your heart today, but I hope that some way that he's pointed you to Christ, that his word and what we've talked about today has. Live for him. And as so we live for him, doesn't mean we ignore the world around us. We live in the real world. But it means we live in the world, real world around us with a different kind of eye, an eye that our priorities are somewhere else. So take these things, think on them. Whatever God is speaking in your heart today, respond to him. And if you haven't trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, where you just have gone all in, I encourage you today to do that, to, to turn away from that sin and to simply ask Him that He died on the cross to save you, to be the only thing you trust in. Make that commitment today. God bless you. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. Join us on Sundays at 9.30 and 11 or online at riveralbany.com.